You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented The Dead Zone. Watching it with me is Paul Jenkins, who can be found on Twitter at 4foot. Hi, Paul, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Richard. Good, and um, so thank you for suggesting this film. It was an absolute treat. How was it for you this time? Oh, it's great. I mean, it, it remains a... Oh, I don't want to use the word family favourite because it doesn't seem appropriate for a film with uh, half the scenes it does have in, but it's... Ever since I first watched it in 1984, it's been in my top 10, and I, I can't think of of uh, many films that have stayed in it that long. Um, yeah, I watched it twice again over the weekend just to make sure I was fully refreshed, fully refreshed on the film that I know I've seen at least 80 times. And yet I never get bored of it. <laughs> well, this is um, this is the third film already that I've covered that's been written by Stephen King in, in one of his guises, and this one directed by David Cronenberg. It's it's funny because while it's a Stephen King book and it has a lot of his, I suppose, tropes, it's, it is a Christopher Walken. He, you know, he walks away with this film, doesn't he? Oh, he's, he's absolutely incredible. He, I was trying to find the right words for him. He is just terrific. He, what, what I really like about him is he just, it's one of the rare films that he doesn't dance, but he still moves fantastically. Everything he does, it seems like the script was designed with his syntax in mind. It, he just totally steals the show. Without Jack Nichols in it, <laughs> I may be referring to another. St- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that, that was again another one where, in doing some of the reading for this, I found that one of the alternative cast suggestions from Stephen King himself was Bill Murray. I can imagine Bill Murray replacing Walken in and vice versa. I, mean, I think Groundhog Day would have been a much more inter- an interesting film. But I can see Walken doing Rushmore. I can, I can, I, you know, I can say that. And that and I, that's no criticism of Bill Murray in, in, in that film because it's another firm value for And yet I can picture Walkman, uh, you know, struggling with uh, the young Max. <laughs> and and this was, I mean, Walken, he yeah. won his Oscar for Deer Hunter. And this was the last film he did before the film that I probably knew him best for was um, A View to a Kill, where he was um, Max Zorin. Yet this one... You know, and I'd seen it in parts, and to get to watch it all the way through like I did the other night, you know, I walked away from it thinking, "Fly me, this is brilliant!" And ninety percent of it is because of him. Oh, he 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 definitely carries the whole movie. I mean, there's the famous, you know, there's various bits you can quote, "The ice is going to break" or whatever. You, but he never ever gets completely carried away. He's so believable in this as this kind of broken man with this unwanted gift because it, you know, it, at the heart of it is is a heartbroken bloke who's lost his girl to somebody else and that's and that's what shines through in all of his in all of his movements in all of the actions hmm. everything is just this literally wounded soldier <laughs> just this kind of, on the battle on the battlefield of romance i mean essentially his character johnny smith which is quite I suppose a generic American name, really. No. Um, he's a teacher. He works in a school with his girlfriend, Sarah. It's all very cosy. At the opening of the film, you almost don't recognise him as Christopher Walken, do you? Because he looks... He, and the first thing that came to my head was he looked like Stephen Hawking. In, well, the, the way... Well, imagine that. But, um, you know, the hair and the glasses. And he looked so unspectacular in the way that you wouldn't associate Christopher Walken with. He's certainly not a romantic lead at that point, is he? He looks a bit like a... He's got that awful haircut like Nicholas Holt in About a Boy. <laughs> just, a, just It looks like a play, play, Playmobil figure. He's just... It's, it's, <laughs> that's all he... But, yeah. 
still go and watch him listen uh, still go and watch him recite you know the raven so he goes on a date with sarah and they go on a roller coaster and he starts getting headaches and she invites him back into her place it's very you know he's very gentlemanly I, it doesn't go into a huge amount of the state of their relationship and everything but you'd imagine they're pretty serious they're talking about you know she invites him to stay over and he says well some things are worth waiting for so he takes the upper hand or the the moral high ground i suppose and decides you know what i'll, I'll be a respectful gent and go home and um yeah he has um a bit of a ding on the way back, to put it mildly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, especially in eighties quote unquote horror. You're usually punished for having sex, and uh, yeah, <laughs> poor Johnny gets uh, gets a milk truck thrown at him for not having sex. It's, it's, it's a quite uh, it's a quite an unfortunate uh, sequence of events. It's it's almost a metaphor in itself. It's uh, having uh, the the milk truck spilling its load and. <laughs> <Gosh. you> know, <laughs> <just> think... <laughs> <laughs> I must admit that hadn't occurred to me, and I usually have the most pure old mind in any room. I'm quite disappointed I didn't. And I could just think at the end he just sort of went, "Oh, got milk." No, so I was just saying it's uh, you know think about Johnny Smith is that he at the very start of the film he's quoting um, talking about he introduces his class to uh, that they've got to read Sleepy the Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving and putting on my old studied American literature head on. Mm. So it's the thing about Ichabod Crane is that he doesn't get the girl either. But Washington Irving also wrote Rip Van Winkle. Did, I don't remember him waking up with any special powers. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that done as you say, he's done the opposite of a horror film. He's been respectful. He's driven off in his sensible VW Beetle, and it, it kind of sets it up nicely. You see the truck driver basically falling asleep. Obviously, a, a busy day being a milkman. Johnny crashes into this tanker, but. Um, we then go to the the clinic and and he wakes up after five years. Obviously, we don't know it's five years straight away. Done well to to make him look like he's been out of it for quite some time. He's very uh, very pale and his lips are pursed and everything else. You know, he's he's been through a serious trauma, but he finds it very strange that he's got no scratches and no cuts on him. I was, I'm always amazed by that bit because of his instinctive knowledge that he imagine thinking in that way to know. No bandages, no scratches. That wouldn't occur to me at all. <laughs> oh, I've got no bandages on. I'm all right. <laughs> I maybe mean, just lost a kidney or something. I don't. I don't. I, don't. <laughs> I was just thinking about um, how he uh, how he has the sort of presence of mind to realise that he he isn't. He, he must have been there some time. It seems a remarkable gift. I think the the thing in the roller coaster where he gets the first headache. It's it's not. I mean, it's only the first time for us, the viewer. Uh, in the film within the story but I, I always feel that there's, there's this sense of that he knows that this is this, that something big is going to happen to him that he's that he's always been prepared for this kind of momentous event and that's perhaps why he doesn't sort of consummate his relationship with uh, Sarah and what have you there's a kind of the headaches are getting serious so he decides not to not to worry he, he always mentions that um, the thing the quote uh, as he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt nobody troubled his head anymore about him and it, it suggests to me there's a certain part of his character that relates to that line, like I, I, I won't be a burden on anyone. I'm not. I don't think it's uh, refusal to shag so much as kind of like he's almost protected her in some way because he doesn't know what's around the corner. But it turns out to be a milk truck. <laughs> I could be overthinking this. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I, I suppose I'm not going to lie and try and put myself in that position. You know, we're being very sensible about these things. I'm, I'm sure if a, if a woman's essentially throwing herself at you, at least he had some willpower. I can't say I'd be the same. 
you know, I suppose if, if he's trying to be patient and good and the last thing he wants is to sort of tell him, oh, I've got a headache, getting that excuse in early. But while he's in the doc, uh, in with the doctor, and this is before he knows how long he's been out for, and he does the sort of full, the first sort of full walk, and I suppose we can call it of him saying to the doctor, sort of, how long? It's for his that, that overemphasizing in, in the way that only he can do. I can't, uh, I, I, I joked earlier on about, Perfected my walking measure. I can't. I can't. I can't do that at all. I'm just no, no. It's, it, it, you know how, how long? It's, it's just. It's a great scene. I mean, it's Herbert Long, one of the great scenes that he's up against, and he you know holds his own. The Doctor in this, he isn't just some stooge at the beginning who, he's his only role is sort of exposition. He actually plays quite a, a major part throughout the film, and he's he's not wasted in this at all. It's more than just a cameo. Yeah. No. It's. It, I mean, I'm, I've never read the novel. Um, I've only ever knew uh, mm. It feels like he's a, a, a useful device to kind of push uh, Walken's the, the development of Walken's condition on in, in the viewer's mind. You know, but it never feels like exposition. It never feels like, oh, you must be suffering from blah 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 blah. <laughs> it, it, it always, you know, it, it always feels because he has that relationship with the patient intensified by the the revelations about the doctor's the doctor's mother. So um, yeah, because it's just after this that we see the sort of first real demonstration of Johnny's powers. Yeah, where yep. the really quite sort of, quite startling, I suppose, where he grabs the well, the nurse is sort of sponging him down, grabs the nurse and sort of says, "Your daughter's screaming. The house is burning. Your daughter's in the house." Two three-word sentences, but he's then transported into the room where her daughter is there's fire even the the bed that he's in is on fire they really get a town with this even the goldfish bowl boils over and explodes it's still incredibly well done i think i mean you know i think now if if that um if it ever got remade i think they would be be overboard with kind of you know histrionic cgi mm. or what, what have you. i think that's a very real scene it's it's it, it's so just and it, of course it's got that fantastic image of walking in the child's bed it's yeah. just this you know, it's it's so that in itself is almost the most alarming thing in a room in which a child might be burning to death and i think that's a really clever thing you can, your focus is always on walking and i think that's why he really does carry the film because you, your attention is always on him and his situation not the kind of events that he's influencing and seeing it's 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 his reaction to them and the, the fact that he is clearly distressed by because in his head and we find this later on at the other events that he seems to be at he's actually he's there for all intents and purposes he's he's like a, a witness yeah. you know the fact that this nurse is able to go and, and save the daughter this is what brings it into the public eye he touches uh-huh. the doctor's hand and you know the doctor was a, a refugee from the second world war and somehow works out that his mother's still alive very i suppose that you know and it'd be at that time where his mother's still alive living in america it's um you know, really sort of pushing it home to the doctor. That's like, yeah, th- this is real. I'm not. I'm not faking this. No, it's a scene which I think another director might have been keen to kind of explore a bit more. And you know, I'm sure the studios would have loved the reunited with the you know, war fleeing mother after 40 years. I don't. I don't know if that any of that is in the book itself. But I like the fact that the doc- moral kind of cheedy in the good place <laughs> sort of, of thing about it. You know, it wasn't meant to be. It's uh, it's it's heartbreaking, but it's it's right for the film. The film isn't about anybody other than Johnny, and uh, his his uh, evolving reaction to his condition. 
while he's still in the hospital, still recuperating, uh, Sarah comes to visit him. His mother had already told him that she'd remarried, but she's come to visit him, uh, tells him that she has a kid. He deals with it. He doesn't get too emotional, but even at one point you can tell he's still in love with her because that five years hasn't, hasn't, he hasn't had to live through that. No, no, it's heartbreaking. She's lovely. Brooke, Brooke Adams. She's um, in real life. She's married to the guy who plays uh, Monk. Yeah, yeah, that's a good show. I can imagine Walken playing playing Monk. That's a, that's a, that would be a really good. I'd watch or Bill Murray actually. Either either of those. So, so she comes to visit, and then they have the. He tries to make the at the press conference to try and get it all out in the open, and I suppose it's an early way of him dealing with it. You know, therapy and getting some closure. He ends up talking about the reporter's sister having died yeah that's quite a, quite a dark scene there's a touch of kramer from seinfeld about him which is kind of uh and it, of course his mother is watching the it's because it's live news at home and uh, that's the last she sees that's the kind of thing that kills her is 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 a is a son becoming a kind of frankenstein's monster uh, on live tv because she's very religious and and the part where you know, she's her and and his dad are, are like the first there when he wakes up, and she's praying, and I don't know. That was a little bit odd. There's lots of it. There's lots of it, isn't it? You chief cop refers to her as I hear. I, you know, I hear she was a good woman, and I think that seems to be a kind of a, like a, a middle American shorthand for went to church religiously. The flip side is that Johnny gets called the devil, doesn't he, and stuff by uh, later character. There's a, quite a lot mm. of God in it, but uh, but we'll, I don't. We'll probably touch on that later in Johnny's most famous speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because as, as you touched on the sheriff or the local sheriff he's busy investigating a series of rapes and murders and i suppose if if yeah. you're a detective or a sheriff and you've exhausted all your inquiries then i suppose in the early 80s you would go to the local geezer who claims to be a clairvoyant i'm sure uh Derek Akora has been approached by the Merseyside Constabulary on several occasions. He struggles to find people who are alive, so I don't know how he'd do uh, looking for dead people. But um, Johnny initially is a little bit reluctant to help. Well, by this point, he's been heartbroken, probably, isn't he? So, you know, he just he, his girl's gone, and then, you know, he does, oh, I've forgotten the detective's name now. He's, he says, you know, if, if the Lord has seen fit to bless you with this gift, and then cue this brilliant. I mean, it's the only time Walker does anything like kind of you know, grandstanding <laughs> in the film. And yet he's still vulnerable because he's, you know, you know his stick holding hand is, is shaking and he's just about holding it together. God's taken my girl through a truck at me and uh, it's been a real sport. I love that line. He's got, God's been a real sport. <laughs> All he needs is the love of a good woman and he changes his mind. Sarah comes round. He finally gets whatever it was worth waiting for. She can't resist him. Who hasn't decided to, to assist the police in a serial killer inquiry after losing their virginity? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an everyday, everyday American pastime, I should imagine. It's one of those hallelujah moments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, some people turn over, have a cigarette. He's like, yeah, I'll help you solve those rapes. Yeah, fuck it. Use my magic powers. Yep. I'll do anything now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it out of system. I'll, I'll even cook. <laughs> But then that's where she and and the boy are there playing happy families for a short period. And just to to rub it in, she says, oh, yeah, we'll see you again soon. 
not like today. Yeah, but that's it. That's a one-time deal. Is it then he moves away? I think that, no, this was a bit later because this is when he then goes to help uh, the sheriff because there's been another murder. Ah, yes, yes, yes. While while he's in the tunnel. So he's in the tunnel like a sniffer dog, you know, trying to get the scent off some old cigarettes and uh, the fag packet. And while they're there, the other, the, the latest body's been discovered um, in the gazebo. <laughs> which sounds like something out of Midsummer Murders, where he touches the dead body and can visualise that he was there at the scene of the crime. So at this point, he can only really, this is what we find later on, he can be at the present or he can be at the past. And he's standing there and actually sees, and it's the sheriff's deputy who does the deed. It's a, it's a, it's a terrifically chilling scene. It, it, it's, it's quite, I think it's quite telling. That's the only time that the the film looks like winter is in that scene like like a kind of movie winter mm. the rest of the time films don't tend to kind of have slush yeah. in them but because the, the film is, is if it it's just entirely overcast no. and it's never snowed it has snowed sometime previously and the roads are just thick with slush it's quite a sort of depressing wet looking castle rock <laughs> and yet it's in this sequence in this murder where where he so it's present at the bands, the bandstand or gazebo thing. It's a pure snow. It's a and everything feels sort of much more chilling as a, as a result. We're taking out the kind of ordinary and prosaic kind of greyness of 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 everything everyday life. And now this is real. Someone's died. It's quite a sort of shift in tone. The thing is that you see his emotional struggle because he's standing there watching this woman, knowing what's going to happen, and the fact that she she works at the cafe she knows the suspect who we know find out is the deputy and johnny has to basically stand there and watch her get raped and murdered yeah yeah <laughs> which is an accomplice really was it joint enterprise didn't do anything to stop it he has to has to stand there and watch that that's when he tells the sheriff that it was your deputy i saw his face they go back obviously the deputy's done a runner because i think he knows what's coming and they go back to it's proper like something out of Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill's house. Yeah, yeah, it's oh, it's proper Bates Motel, isn't it? It's you know, it's, yeah. It reminded me a little of um, the house from Carrie, the original Sissy Spacek. Kind of, it yeah. is that kind of, oh, you, you know, the horrors of, or you feel that you know, a sense of the background. That's sort of, all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not much of an escape, Sorry. is it? <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll go to my house. <laughs> But confronted with someone with those powers, I mean, there might, there maybe it's a kind of sense of, well, I don't know, I'm going to get caught. On. <laughs> I'll go to my house. I'll look out. I'll look out the window so that they know I'm there. It's the first. Um, I watched this film initially in 1984, and I and I know and I can remember why I remember all this. And it was it's a very big year in the history of my family. It was firstly, we joined the 20th century by getting a color television for the first time, and and a video recorder. And suddenly my family were hooked, like many families across the country probably by this point, with renting videos. And we just, I mean, it was every other night was a, you know, a film. And this was the first, I mean, I was 13. And this is the first X, I'm guessing it must have been an X, as it was. Mm. They, they weren't 18s, they were they? I think they were a certificate X. I, don't, I think it's, and that's, that whole scene, I remember my mum was a massive Stephen King fan. And she's like, oh, I can't yeah. let you watch it. And then she kind of, I don't know if it's in the book, she went, I just wanted to leave the room for about five seconds. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? But then the years later, I saw it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> and it, it, it doesn't seem very kind of... 
surefire either. I don't. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to line up my mouth with these precariously balanced scissors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a painless way to go basically uh yeah like what is that about i mean obviously scissors is his kind of murder weapon of choice isn't it, it seems to be there's something in that i don't know but uh i don't know uh, <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be my way out <laughs> i'm sure my, uh, a lot of people have injuries like that anyway just from slipping in the bathroom it's um you think if you've got access to firearms and and everything else that a pair of well, nail scissors is um but after he, because they walk yeah. in, well, him and Johnny and the sheriff, who've now become sort of partners in crime, they go to the house. Johnny grabs the mother, and immediately, because of his power, he sort of says, "You knew, you know, she knew about all these crimes." And so by the time they find that Dodd, the deputy, has killed himself, Mum's appeared with his gun, decides to shoot Johnny, and then miss several other rounds before the sheriff gets her. But yeah, that was like something out of Throw Mama from the Train or something. It was very, uh, all, all, almost comedy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a kind of premonition in that A, Johnny gets shot for the first time in that, but also she's sort of on the stairs through these banisters and you sort of see a slump. The look of that, the, that shot seems to be very kind of, very similar to the, the, the kind of spoilers come the sort of the final kind of images of him descending clutching the stars and strike yeah. but that's when he moves um because he's yeah that yeah that's that's when he goes on zoopla <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's done quite well out of that hasn't he? he's gone on um, zoopla right move and, and found himself prime real estate opposite a political poster. it's un- unbelievable that's the only thing that's still really you don't appear to have an income but you know it's a very nice house. <laughs> it's yeah, it's massive, and so he's moved there and and starts tutoring. And then the rich fella turns up because he wants him to teach his kid, who is something of a recluse. It's Chris, but this guy, and I realised when I watched it, he's actually one of the baddies yeah. from Licence to Kill. I looked him up recently on IMDb, and he's been in everything from the Red Hand Gang to Cool Hand Luke. To American Hustle. He was the uh, the guy with the boat, I think, was he? Who got stuck in the pressure chamber. Milton Crest. Yeah, he's, yeah he's, about, he's, and he's always about ninth on the bill. And he's just got that great oh, yes. sort of character actor face. He's, you know instantly, probably a prick. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Well, you know, this is two Bond villains sort of facing off. But when he goes to the house for his first lesson, because he, he did take a bit of convincing, he, that's where he meets... Greg Stilson, Martin Sheen in, I suppose, his preparation for the West Wing. I, I, I kind of, I'll be honest, I gave up on the West Wing about halfway through. It was a little bit too nice for me. I've never seen the West Wing. Uh, to me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it has always seemed like like a show that about McDonald's where everyone is incredibly happy and the chickens are singing and the cows are singing <laughs> out the back and nobody minds being slaughtered. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of, oh, it'll... It all went well in the end, and I, I, I hear it mentioned in the same vein as the Sopranos or The Wire or this, that, never. But yeah, I mean, people, people do really love it. I've yeah. generally never seen it. I, I got about I, halfway through it, and I just, I, I could, it was a bit twee almost because Martin Sheen in that is a very sort of down to earth, and I'm probably slagging it. It probably sounds like I'm slagging it off to anyone who's listening. He comes across as a good man in this. 
he is a fucking bell end. He's a thug. He's he's basically milking this Roger guy for money to fund his campaign to be a senator. Oh, he's a uh, he's about as far removed as from an idealistic president as you can get. He is. Oh, he's just, he's just vile. He, it's interesting that he, a lot of things he speaks about are the things that Johnny Smith is experiencing. It's just, oh, I have a vision. I have, it's, it's, it's like, you don't have visions. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, old Limpy. has <laughs> got visions. <laughs> just don't touch his hand. <laughs> yeah, he's... he's, he's um, I mean, it's, it, it's obvious now that we could draw comparisons with, with the current incumbent of the White House, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting that, I mean, he is just... It, because he does all that kind of, um, you you got to get fit for when you're dealing with the White House. He's always showing off his kind of physical prowess and doing push-ups and stuff. You keep seeing these shots of him, you know, mm. sort of working out. It's like Putin as well. He does that. <laughs> I never thought of that. He does that kind of like, you know. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, and, uh, he's it's, uh, it's a, you know, a, brav- you know, a bravura performance because he's, he's, Sheen is, is absolutely superb. You're aware straight from the start that he is just deeply deeply unpleasant <laughs> without it being kind of sort of screamed at you he's just vile because the first or the second time after because we already seen him because they were erecting a huge banner opposite uh, johnny's new house which yep. i suppose is a, a room with a view the next time we see him he's basically blackmailing a reporter who's running a piece against him with pictures of, uh, you know, he's implying that he's being bankrolled by the oil companies yeah. and he's got one of the attractive ladies. You know, it, some of what he does is, we don't see the photos, but he's implying this is an attractive young woman who has a honey trap and then compares it to a picture of his wife who, let's just say, isn't young and... No. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's, this is... I've got anything. It's it's a it's funny. It's a very dark, dark humor. It's just it, oh, sunny. Yeah, <laughs> that, it's, yeah um, it's... I mean, she, she's probably got a lovely personality as wife, but I don't think she's going to take this the right way. No, no. But then after that, that's when Sarah's already in, talked about her husband. He works as a as a canvasser for Stilson, yep. so he turns up on the the doorstep. And it's only when Sarah turns up and he's like, oh, yes, I've heard lots about you through gritted teeth. And yeah, 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 yes. You can hear that kind of... Uh, yeah. Oh, oh you're, you're, the you're the one. Yeah, it's... Uh, that guy isn't in it for long, but it's a brilliant scene because, uh, uh, you know, like you say, he's he, you know, he's the one that... It doesn't seem real that probably another kind of kick in the teeth for, for Johnny is that... <laughs> Jibbery. <Yeah. laughs> but it's here because Chris, the, the boy he's tutoring, is at the house... And I, to be honest, I'm sure if you are there to canvass for a vote and you see a creepy man living on his own and has a what, 11 or 12-year-old boy just emerging and hurry up, come back. Yes, it's, it's, it's an odd one, that. Yeah, the, oh, this is going down the path of the big podcast again where yeah, there were some safeguarding measures brought in there. So he, the, the kid comes out, and this is when I suppose we get the scene that most people seem to remember. Yeah. Because he... Um, he gets the vision of the ice hockey yeah. match and Chris playing ice hockey on, well, people anyway, playing ice hockey on the lake and, and, and falling through. So he takes, takes the kid back because he says to the dad, you know, he's cancel the match, cancel the match. And the dad doesn't like it. And of course, what do we get? The ice is going to break. It reminds me of the, um, uh, one of the scenes in Jaws, 
where you know it's, it's the you know the beaches are open. <laughs> yeah. Come in, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. You know, it's, you know that's it. It's uh, it's um, <laughs> that's that great shot then of of, uh, of Chris's dad sat there with the phone ringing. It's just perfect. Just the link, just like sitting by sitting in. Mm. What you know, he's in, he's, in, he's in a very comfortable home with the fire, but the, the, you look at his face. There's that. There's no warmth in that room anymore. <laughs> it's gone. He's almost like he's in a coma himself, yeah. isn't he? He's in that sort of catatonic state because Johnny's read the paper saying that two two yeah. kids died, um, and because Chris has obviously heard Johnny and decided to yeah. play on his computer, so he's not gone along. And and I suppose like anything, if someone tells you something's going to happen, you go against it. And maybe, yeah. I suppose it is like the mayor from Jaws, isn't it? You um you, you don't listen to this crazy man who's got a proven track record of being correct, and then um you don't listen to him. Think, oh, he's going to be wrong one time, isn't he? Oh fuck it, they're not my they're not my kids. Fuck it. If, if somebody with a proven track record of clever ways, he told me my child's going to die tomorrow in the in the leisure activity you're planning. I cancel the leisure activity. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to think he's fairly specific. He's not just going to be like he's not just yeah. saying your son's going to die. Yeah, because then you're kind of like, oh fuck, what do I do? What do I do? Your son is going to die in an ice hockey match on a lake that you're planning now. I can only presume that Johnny's turned up late a couple of times, drunk or something. <laughs> a, a really good tutor. Do you know, like, there must be some deleted scene where Johnny is just like, like oh, here he goes again, hung over and telling people you know, stuff that doesn't actually come <laughs> true. So, but you know, as far as the viewer is concerned, his track record is flawless. <laughs> He's probably he's probably uh-huh. told he said oh yeah these are the winning lottery numbers or uh, yeah New, New York are going to win the baseball today yeah here you go put a monkey on it <laughs> but after this because um, he's at the phone box he goes off because there's a rally for Stilson yep. um, on the big field opposite and this is where the, the real dark part of the story goes because before when he met Stilson very briefly he didn't shake his hand he only got button a badge thrust in it yeah he got he got popped up with a with a campaign badge and he said, yeah but this time he actually gets to shake his hand so he gets that physical contact yeah. and then he sees the sort of visions of nuclear apocalypse and um martin sheen i suppose it's probably camp david isn't it the, the general planning a nuclear destruction yeah. of the soviet union yeah I'll fulfill my destiny <laughs> yeah. it's like something out of star wars isn't it it's yeah, like yeah. I'll fulfill my destiny by destroying russia and the fact that he has to sort of basically threaten the general to put his hand on this scanner which looks like it was bought from argos for 50p yeah it, it, yeah it looks a bit like one of those yeah those kind of it looks like pocket simon or something <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a modified speak and spell <laughs> and they appear to be in some kind of sh- very large shed just before he sort of finally finally gets to shake uh, Stilson's hand there's this brilliant shot and it's one of my favorite things in the film you don't see him walking dancing in this film but you do see him almost gliding with a stick across this road through the slushes this brilliant shot the sort of anybody else in these sort of wintry slushy conditions would He's a man on a mission. He doesn't know why he's going across. I mean, the, the, the viewer is invited to think that it's, it's it's all to do with Sarah, but I don't think that's clear. Um, the other thing is that that sort of scene where he's kind of spinning around and lost and not not sure what he's doing there, and there's this kind of singing and dancing before Stills makes a speech. It's very similar to kind of some of the scenes in Groundhog Day, where where Bill Murray's you know, Bill Murray again. We mentioned quite a few times. Like is is about to kind of. Bit where he's on his sort of seventeenth yeah. filming of the of the Groundhog ceremony, those kind of scenes where he's just wandering around like I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, like what? And it's that same kind of 
I'm moving in this direction because I don't know what else I should be doing. And then where the course he shakes Martin Sheen's hand. <laughs> but it's it's more than just a vision and, and I suppose, you know, I, I remember from seeing it years ago, you know, what what he saw. But I for some reason I had it in my head that all he saw was some sort of, you know, a mushroom cloud or missiles firing and stuff. But it's actually Stilson's version or in his head of what happens because it's him putting his hand on the scanner, pressing the button, and then when the vice president turns up and he's like, the missiles are flying, hallelujah. You know, they've turned up to stop him and it's too late. And it, it, it's, it's still chilling now, but I, mean, I can remember, I mean, you being a teenager in 1984, it was just every other every other week there was a drama, so there was just about nuclear threads or the day after, or that was all you ever thought about. I don't, maybe I was maybe I was a, bit, a particularly sort of pessimistic 13-year-old, but it just seemed to be like, we're all going to melt. <laughs> Any day now, and, and you know, and in the middle of this film, there's this jarring reminder that that was a thing. There's no escape. There's no escapism. So there are lunatics out there who will press the button. And you know, this was 1983, so it's kind of right in the middle of of that era. And I suppose now, you know, we we continue to have a raging lunatic with supposedly his finger on the button. They're just like, oh, he's just gonna fucking put something on Twitter. You know, all these things about you know wishing we had Superman or this. And we need Christopher Walken. And his hop and skip. Um, because this sort of brings around the, the question that everyone asks. It's one of those the famous hypothetical question because he says to the Doctor, and of course we already know that the Doctor's got links to World War Two. if you had the chance, would you go back and, and kill Hitler? Now, this is one of those questions that everyone seems to ask, you know, if, if you could, you know, go back and, and stop everything. And, you know, the Doctor gives a quite an impassioned, I suppose, reasoning for saying, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm supposed to help people and support and everything. But yeah, I fucking kill him. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, kill someone. Yeah, it's, of course. It's, it, yeah. Of course. <laughs> it's that moment, isn't it, that once, um, go ahead, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, that's the permission. You know, it's uh, go for it. Yeah, because he's realised that, and he, I suppose after the, the ice skating thing as well, the hockey, he realises that uh-huh. he can influence the future. Yeah, once he's yeah he's, he's saved the boy's life, now he can change the outcome of the vision. You know, he's in that unique position where, you know, what's the alternative? He tells the, who's he going to tell? So I had a vision that the president is going to, or the, the geezer is going to become president and then blow up the world. Um, I suppose he takes it upon himself, goes and gets his dad's gun because he writes to Sarah because Sarah's on his campaign team, basically saying, yeah, I've got to do it. Um, sorry, love you. <laughs> it's a bit of a dear John letter, really. I always worry how he gets it on the bus. Yeah, I mean, he... I, just, <laughs> I know this is in a film of things that you really shouldn't worry about. That's you know, you know that it's it's not thing to kind of go. Really, could you really get a gun under that coat on the bus? The weird thing is, is that I don't know which part. I can't remember which part of America it's set in. I suppose it's probably in the north yeah. part. But um, you know, the fact that he seems to partially dismantle it, wrap it in some old blankets. It's probably more suspicious that way. He might as well have just kept it in one piece as a long rifle and carry it on the bus that way. He'd have probably had fewer questions asked. But yeah, he's on the way to the meeting, isn't he? And it does have a kind of Western feel about it, that yeah. kind of um, build-up, sort of, sort of this town hall, kind of like the sort of sheriff's kind of office, almost like the, this is it. Yeah, he's on the ga- he's on the gallery, but um, again, I, I I know this. You know, we're going back a while, but um, 
you know, did they not have metal detectors? How did he sneak in? Did they not do? I, I guess he's not a president. You know, he's not even a senator yet. But you'd think there'd be some sort of private security out looking for him rather than his one hired goon. Well, Martin learns very quickly that Sonny's has got more than a few security lapses. Yeah. And and this goon, you know, who, who does all the dirty work, I can't remember his name now. As Stilson comes into the the parade uh, into the meeting he, to give his speech, uh, Johnny stands up. But as you do, I suppose you, you've got all this build-up misses. And I suppose the without having to kill Stilson, because all he does is, is shoot and miss, Stilson grabs the kid, who, why you take a 10-month-old there, I don't know, Sarah's boy, and uses him as a human shield. Well, I wouldn't put it past. Oh, God, no. No, no. I mean, that's, that's probably <laughs> yeah. the, he's, he's probably got a shield made of babies. No. And, it, and it is, you know... And it's, it's it's a fantastic thing because, of course, what is the worst thing a, a human being could do before they get the chance to commit nuclear war? <laughs> protect themselves with with somebody else's toddler. Yeah, and the thing is, is that you know, ultimately, in the end, because the the goon shoots Johnny and, and yep. he falls off the off the balcony, Johnny hasn't actually shot him. He hasn't assassinated yep. him. He hasn't hurt yep. anyone. You know, obviously, taking a gun, you know, is not ideal, but. He's achieved his ends in a bloodless protest. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a moral win. He's you know he's I guess you know, you know for his mother's sake he can go to heaven untainted. <laughs> yeah, because obviously as he's lying on the floor bleeding out, um, Stilson uh, he he grabs Stilson and and can tell his new future. It's like in Back to the Future where you know or the butterfly effect. You've changed the course of the future where. Stilson it has a copy of is it Time or Newsweek or something like that? Yeah, Newsweek, yeah. Yeah, with a picture of him holding the baby as a human shield. But his political career is in tatters and um he shoots himself. So He doesn't he doesn't miss. <laughs> no. <laughs> if only he had the rifle. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant scene. The the dark room, the it's yeah, the the complete is the opposite of the the snow and the kind of what is this very kind of stylized but perfect, perfect image. Mm. And it's it just goes to show that you know when when Johnny says you're finished, yeah. and because there was a photographer in there who apparently was actually one of oh, Martin Sheen's right. sons in real life. I don't know if it's Charlie or one of the other ones, but yeah. So because the photographer's got this picture. Of him holding a toddler, that's his career over. It's, uh, I mean, we, as you said, we can only hope that Trump has a an army of yeah, babies can, ready can... to deploy. Should a similar thing happen, I mean, JFK, JFK should have thought better about these things. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no grassy knolls in this film. It's just <laughs> endless, endless piles of slush. <laughs> yeah, and then some blood, and and uh, the film ends with him him dying and Sarah whispering, "I love you." And you've got to be, I know, I'm incontinent at the best of times, but it still moves me every time, every time, because mm. I, I don't think Johnny does it to save mankind. He does it to save Sarah. That's the only, you know, it isn't about saving humanity for me. I think it's, it's you know, I think it's all about her. Mm. It's, it's you know, obviously on some level, we must think, well, I get to save everyone. <laughs> but first and foremost, the love of his life. And that's, you know, and that's a, yeah. you know, a beautiful thing. So in reality, this is some sort of romantic, maybe not a comedy, but uh... it's not quite a rom com. But I mean, there is there is one great gag in it, and it is 
uh, when Sarah says she's looking, you know, looking pretty good, and he says uh, the coma diet. <laughs> yeah, it's a very bad impression. The coma diet. Coma diet. Yeah, lose lose weight while you sleep. It's a good line, delivered with a very <laughs> subtle hint of bitterness, and you know. <laughs> But it gets him a shag, and that's and that's another lesson to learn that you know, as long as you're not too bitter, you know, a, a joke will get you somewhere in bed. <laughs> he's he's playing the long game. The, I suppose the only flaw in that plan is he turned it down at the start of the film. Now, yeah, well, this is it. There's no there's no film. You know, he gets punished for for not. For, <laughs> oh, she's lovely as well. In a kind of retrospective, yeah. she's probably about seventy now. But then. He... <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's just say Johnny was punching above his weight there, wasn't he? He certainly was. Um, while I was looking, I know before, like today before we recorded and I ended up down a Christopher Walken YouTube rabbit hole, I found a video which, and I didn't realise that this film was quite so famous that it was ripe for parody, but there was a Saturday Night Live video where Walken had been on and his character in this sketch had similar powers only he used them for the most tedious ends (laughs) basically saying that one guy he said you're going to get a cup of coffee and then you hail a cab and you leave the coffee in the cab (laughs) and that that was they're hearing like but that's useless information i'll just buy another cup of coffee and it and it seemed that every time you grab someone's hand um to shake it and then I think Chris Rock was in it. As well. you know, this, I suppose it must have been a while ago. Adam Sander was in it as well. But Chris Rock, he sort of grabbed his hand and said, you've got a car. Can I have a lift? No one likes me. So Chris Rock says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll give you a lift. He grabs his hand again and says, there'll be traffic. I'll put a link to that on, on Twitter. It was, it was quite funny. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that... Again, like some of the previous films I've covered that are based on books, and, and I know you can't say a film is similar to a book, but it really does make me want to go back and read the book. Yeah, I think I think I might now. I mean, it, it's it's it, it does feel like a story you know, that's there's probably a lot of stuff that hasn't made it. In. I, I think I, I read an um, an article once uh, recently, rather when I was doing my kind of brief research for this, and I, I think in the book, and I could be wrong, that the the sort of the lives of Johnny and Stilson kind of run in parallel. You see a lot of, of Stilson's background. There's kind of a lot of investigation of his character and his kind of background. That sort of, so that, it'd be pretty quite interesting. But I, I, I read something where I think um, Stilson threatened to cut the general's hand off and put it on the scanner because he wouldn't do it. It's... <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. But then I'm just going to read it now and that's think it. of it, read every part of Johnny's dialogue in with the Christopher Walken voice in my head. Suppose that's a danger. <laughs> well, um, Paul, thank you very much for recommending this film. It was um, great fun to rewatch, and I'll certainly be doing it again. And I'll let you know if I get the book. Um, you just tell us a little bit about your uh, Twenty Four Stories project, please. Uh, yeah, it's uh, well, it's not just me. Uh, there's four of us. Yeah. Um, obviously, everyone knows the events of June the fourteenth last year with the Grenfell Tower. And a friend of mine, Row, and I were on Twitter discussing that you want to do something. Not sure what. Not sure how. And a couple of other friends on Twitter got involved and somebody vaguely knew such and such a person who might know somebody. And within 48 hours, Kathy Burke was mentioning our project on the last leg. And then we went to Unbound, uh, the publisher who helped us crowdfund this thing. And now we've got a book with short stories from Irving Welsh and Mira Sayal 
amongst others, as on top of my head, I can't remember. Uh, this is, is a mixture of first-time writers and famous writers because we wanted to make this book about it's sort of you know a, a democratic thing, a, a thing of new voice. Was the kind of one of the problems in the kind of lead up to that fire was that these people, you know, people who were people who the victims of Grenfell were people who were kind of marginalised by society in terms of kind of the media. They, they were demonized in the weeks after some of them as kind of immigrants or illegal immigrants or what have you we want the the, the, the themes of the stories to be positive about community and togetherness and unity and hope and it's been it's been an incredibly rewarding process watching this book come to life and but you know a lot of hard work and all the proceeds all the profits that we make are going to this trauma response network and what they do is look after people who have been involved in traumatic events and they deal with the post-traumatic stress disorder related care of people because you know after the you know after people have been rehoused and still people haven't been rehoused and what have you people have been patched up and bandaged and what have you there's still a trauma to be dealt with and that the effects of that can be long lasting and you know hopefully this book will, will you know will go a little way to to, to helping helping people you know who've already gone through an enormous ordeal you know, suffer a little less. Um, I'm not sure what I can say about that, but more apart from, you know, if you follow 24 Stories on Twitter, uh, and you can get the links to the charity and how to pledge to buy an electronic copy of the book, uh, it's all there. And like I say, all the money goes to a very good cause. Brilliant. And I'll, I'll make sure I put all the links on the, uh, the post so anyone who's downloaded or subscribed to the podcast can um, have a look for themselves. Um, but all it remains for me to say is, uh, Paul, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. And um, as per usual, I'll play the podcast out with the song that was number one in the UK at the time of the film's release, which uh, not really in keeping with the spirit of the film was uh, Pipes of Peace by Paul McCartney. <laughs> we, all love, we all love a maudlin macker, don't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's only right. But um, again, Paul, thank you very much. Not at all, my pleasure. Help them to learn songs of joy instead of burn, baby burn. Let us show them how to play the vibes of peace. Play the vibes of This podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.